Hello there, I'm Barry Smith, and on behalf of Fingal Libraries, I'll be bringing to you a new podcast series. It's called Fingal Libraries Podcast of Many Things Cultural, and anything else that takes our fancy. Granted, it is not exactly catchy, but it is sufficiently descriptive to let you know what you're getting yourself into. I'll be honest, and let you know from the outset that we won't be taking ourselves too seriously. There is more than enough serious going on in the world at present, so we can allow ourselves a bit of fun here. Week to week, we look at different bits and bobs. Some weeks might look at an episode in our history, other weeks we might talk about some cultural holiday, have a gander at some of our national monuments that we walk past regularly and wonder what exactly their purpose was. We'll also explore some of our wildlife, should it take our fancy, and the odd time we could find ourselves knee-deep in an interview, hopefully with interesting and insightful people. So, to kick things off, we'll take it handy today and look at the Vikings in Ireland and explore if they were misunderstood miscreants or complete scumbags. Vikings seem to have a mixed reputation these days. They are still thought of by some as bloodthirsty raiders and destroyers of churches, but equally they are kind of gone long enough now that some people aren't too bothered with what they got up to all those years ago. Is it really worth getting worked up over some out-of-town thugs kicking lumps out of some local lads a thousand years ago? On the contrary, TV shows and films now glorify the exploits of these seafaring rogues, and modern viewers now sit in the comfort of their own home and root for their Scandinavian hero while he slaughters their ancestors, played by some no-name extras. Maybe it's easier to see them as extras as no one really cares about them that much. So if a Viking was to step out of the past, say onto Main Street and Swords, scratching his lice-infested head, wondering where in Odin's beard he was, he could either be spat at or high-fived. It would entirely depend on whom he happens upon, really. So who were the Vikings, anyway, and did they really wear horned helmets? The short answer is Scandinavian and no, but that wouldn't make for a very good podcast, so I'll elaborate somewhat. Viking is a term applied to a whole bunch of lads from Scandinavia. Around the 8th century, the people from areas that would later become Denmark, Norway and Sweden were facing a whole heap of problems, some of which included running out of land to farm, an increase in young restless males and old trade routes becoming less profitable. So rather than learning a new trade or doing some volunteer or charity work, they all thought it'd be great crack to all get together in little gangs, pool their money to buy a boat, arm themselves to the teeth and head out across the sea and see what they could nick from other people. Now throughout history there have always been raiders and pirates around the known world. Sure didn't we do it ourselves? Dear old St Paddy didn't come here as an au pair you know. Oh no. Some Leinster pups hopped onto a boat of their own and went over to Wales. Clocked Paddy on the head along with some other poor unfortunates and brought them back here as slaves. So probably not much different to an au pair, but anyway, it was different what was happening in Scandinavia. It was practically a national effort in an area devoid of nations. It became a total fad and everyone was at it. With little to no collective organisation, countless raiders set out to see what they could find. They went everywhere as raiders, traders, mercenaries and settlers. Some got really adventurous and ended up in the Eastern Roman Empire capital of Constantinople, or Istanbul to the modern Turk. Such was their ferocity on the battlefield that the emperor invited them into his honoured palace guard. 
The Vikings quite liked the idea as they could finally wear shorts under their armour and threw away their heavy winter trousers. They were however mocked behind their back for their pasty white legs. The adventures didn't stop there, oh no. Some other Vikings were really excited when they discovered Greenland but quickly realised that it was quite dull and not conducive to shorts but they'd already unpacked all their stuff so they decided to stay put. Now they certainly wouldn't have called themselves Vikings thinking that they needed a badass name to be feared. In fact, no one would have called them that. And if you were to shout out that the Vikings were coming, your fellow townsfolk would assume you've drank too much stagnant trough water again. The term Vikings was only applied to them in the 11th century. At the time, they would have just been referred to as raiders, pagans, northmen, Danes, and possibly more colourful language being employed. Now to go back to the second question, if they wore horned helmets. No, they didn't. So some Vikings went off to find somewhere new to settle down, once they killed whomever was already settled there of course, and other Vikings went off to raid and plunder and bring the spoils back home so that they may peacock around in someone else's finest. Ireland and England had very different experiences of the Viking invasions. Starting around 795, we both had about 50 years of small-scale raids, where various Viking scoundrels would appear on our shores and raid a monastery or village and be off again before you could say, God Almighty, who are those angry fellows with the unnecessarily large axes and why are they killing everyone? Ah, now they've started a fire, no need for that. And they'd be gone, off with their spoils. By the 840s, however, the Vikings started staying a bit longer, wintering, if you like, in their fortified encampments known as long forts. After they'd pillaged somewhere, they'd hang around for a bit. So now you could easily say, God Almighty, who are those angry fellows with the unnecessarily large axes and why are they killing everyone? Ah, now they've started a fire, and they'd still be here, safe behind their quickly erected palisade. Now, England only had four main kingdoms. Wessex, Northumbria, East Anglia and Mercia. The Vikings won a few wee battles, so decided to gather a few more men and became what contemporaries call them the Great Heathen Army. So they decided to give one of the kingdoms a proper crack and ended up conquering Northumbria, followed by East Anglia and then Mercia, so that only Wessex stood alone. Alfred of Wessex did alright against the odds and won some battles, lost others, until an agreement was reached where the Vikings would hold on to the territory they captured and it was known as Danelaw. Don't worry, they didn't hold on to it for long. However, Ireland was a different story. Whereas England had four main kingdoms, we had anywhere up to 150 small kingdoms, thank you very much. They were known as Thuas, and some would have been very small indeed. We had so many of these Thua that we went to war here somewhat differently. Less war and more summer skirmishes, really. There didn't necessarily exist here the desire to completely eradicate your enemies like elsewhere in mainland Europe. We were by and large happy with giving our neighbouring kingdom a bloody nose and a kick of the backside which we would laugh about over a few beers later on. Next summer, because we only raided in the summertime, no one wanted to get all wet and muddy during the winter. So next summer, your neighbouring kingdom might get one over on you, box the ears off you, steal some cattle and get bragging rights for the year. It was all a bit of chest thumping really, and the chance to pilfer a few cows. So when the Vikings started raiding, rather than Irish kings banding together to expel the foreign menace, nah, you just get an awful slagging for not being able to protect the churches in your territory. And when your back was turned looking for those pesky Vikings, your neighbour king would pop in and nick some of your cattle. Now churches were the obvious focal point for loot-hungry Vikings, 
as they were the main centres of patronage in early medieval Ireland. So they were falling down with fine gold and silver metalwork that encased illuminated manuscripts and beautiful reliquaries and other treasures. The world-renowned Book of Kells was actually started on the island of Iona, off Scotland, where Irish monks had a monastery. They got an absolute hiding off the Vikings in 795, 802 and 806, the last of which saw many of their brothers butchered. So they said nuts to this, packed up what was left of their stuff and moved to Kells in County Meath. Now, before we go furthering the stereotype of disrespecting Vikings ransacking churches, it should be pointed out that Irish kings also raided the churches of their rivals, even more so than the Vikings, although maybe with a little less killing. At this time, Ireland was predominantly rural, with people scattered in family units across the landscape. The churches and monastic centres provided the only semblance of a town that we would today recognise. As well as gold and silver, the Vikings took many slaves and women in particular. The Annals of Ulster lament a Viking incursion into Hoth in 821, where they carried off a great number of women into captivity. Another theory as to why the Vikings began raiding was that there may have been a shortage of women in Scandinavian countries. The initial matchup between Irish warriors and the Vikings would not have exactly been a fair fight. The Vikings would have certainly looked the part. They wore coats of mail that fell down to their knees on top of thick padded undergarments along with conical shaped helmets. They carried an array of weapons including swords, spears, axes, shields and bows and arrows. Throw in a few beards and a solid helping of B.O. and you have some fairly terrifying warriors. What did the Irish look like, you wonder? Well, they looked like they rolled out of bed and grabbed a spear at the door on the way out, along with a banana and a packet of crisps. The Irish did not have battle dress. They literally wore their everyday tunics, and the vast majority of the population did not wear shoes. Some nobles would use a sword and a shield, but the spear was the preferred weapon of the Irish warrior. So naturally the first few engagements went in favour of the Vikings, but the Irish gradually started to win a few battles. It's quite incredible to actually think about it, to repeatedly go up again and again against an unknown foe who was like a walking armoury, and you're there in your tunic, wriggling your toes in the grass armed with a simple spear. The Irish eventually started to cop on to some of the more obvious takeaways from these fights, and started to wear some mail, the odd helmet, and we really took to the battle axe. Like, I mean really talk to it. It was the best thing to come to Ireland since sliced bread, and this was before sliced bread even came to Ireland. We had axes before the Vikings, but they were used for chopping wood and the occasional finger off, but the battle axe was something different altogether. By the time the Normans arrived a couple of hundred years later, they commented on the Irish battle axe and noted it as the premier weapon of the Irish, and also begrudgingly acknowledged their devastating ability with it. The Norman chronicler, Geraldus Cambrensis said of it, and they, the Irish, also carried heavy battle axes of iron, exceedingly well wrought and tempered, but in striking with the battle axe they use only one hand instead of both, clasping the haft firmly and raising it above the head so as to direct the blow with such force that neither the helmets which protect our heads nor the plating of coat of mail which defends the rest of our bodies can resist the stroke. Thus it has happened in my own time that one blow of the axe has cut off a knight's thigh, although it was encased in iron, the thigh and leg falling on one side of his horse and the body of the dying knight on the other. So as you can see, we really, really took to the axe. However, we weren't too phased with the bow and arrow or the shoes. 
I think everyone has just gotten used to wriggling their toes in the grass. So rather than uniting in the face of a common foe, the Irish were happy to laugh at the misfortune of their neighbours should they be raided. Some Irish kings even began to ally themselves with the Vikings so that they could give an old enemy a particularly nasty fright. The Vikings, for their part, were only too happy to take advantage of the instability of the Irish kingdoms. One group of lads decided to settle in what would become known as Dovlin, or Dublin. Their semi-permanent base became ever more permanent when it became clear that the Irish were not going to gang up on them. Others settled in the area of Fingal, which means fair foreigner, referring to some Norwegian blow-ins. One bucko in particular, Turgus, decided to carve out his own kingdom and started rampaging all around the greater Dublin area, particularly in what was known as Midda, which was a large overkingdom made up of modern-day Meath, West Meath, Dublin, parts of Louth and Kildare, all the best bits really. Now the kings of Midda were unable to defend their territory from all sides, and the royal county became the stomping ground for malcontent Scandinavians. There are even accounts in the annals of the Vikings cutting off the noses of all the men in Midda. In short, they were being awful scumbags. Turgish got his comeuppance though. He was eventually defeated and the king of Midda said to him, What way do you not want to die? And Turgus said, Give me a warrior's death, anything, just don't drown me, as my spirit will not be able to leave the water and travel to Valhalla. So naturally the king of Midda had Turgus tied to a giant rock, with the rope being bore through his arms, and chucked him into the nearest lake. With Turgus dead, the men of Midda rejoiced, but then all winced as all their noses had been cut off. The 10th century saw Viking power expand, and they established their port towns of Waterford, Wexford, Cork and Limerick, which became Ireland's first towns. Dublin became a hotbed for Viking activity and was known as one of Western Europe's largest slave port, which was teeming with au pairs. Such was their perceived dominance that by 980, when a new king of Midda, whose name was Mwailochlan, was being crowned at the Hill of Tara, the Dublin Norse, as they were known, decided to march a large army up to Tara to preside over the affair and let the new king know who the real boss was. And they did exactly that barged into the gathering and stood to the side like that git you didn't want to come to your party and that you know won't leave. They were only simply delighted to be making everyone uncomfortable and probably started to tuck into the Rice Krispie squares on the banquet table before the ceremony was over. As I said, complete scumbags. However, this time, Moy Lachlan was having none of it and he gathered a load of mates and their mates and some of the other lads that they were drinking with the week before and thought a good scrap was in order. Do you remember I was saying about the skirmishing nature of Irish warfare? Yeah, this was certainly not that. The battle was an absolute bloodbath, an epic contest that was not replicated until the 1991 Leinster Senior Football Final four-match series between Meath and Dublin. Just like in 1991, the men of Dublin were slaughtered to such an extent that Mwail Auckland was able to march on Dublin and exact tribute from them. So maybe not exactly like 1991, but still epic nonetheless. Thus was Viking power broken in 980 by Mwail Auckland of Midda, not by Brian Brew at Clontarf in 1014, as the Munster propaganda machine would have you believe. The Battle of Clontarf was mainly between Brian of Munster and the Irish King of Leinster called Mael Morda. Leinster had their Viking Dublin allies and even Brian had his Limerick Viking allies. So don't be too quick to believe everything that a Munster man tells you. Brian probably wasn't even praying in his tent, having a nap more likely, or prematurely updating his Facebook status to King of Ireland without opposition bleeding mortal. So after 980 the Vikings were still a force to be reckoned with but they were no longer capable of launching a campaign to conquer large parts of Ireland. 
So what did the Vikings ever do for us? Well, they gave us towns and trade routes, advances in boat building and naval navigation techniques, weaponry and Scandinavian influences in our art and metalworking. Some of them even stuck around. So if you know any Doyles, McAuliffe's or McManus's, just know that they were here nicking cattle and baiting monks around the place 1200 years ago, so maybe keep an eye on them. And that was that. They never really troubled us again. Except, of course, that they later travelled to Normandy, and the French, being too disinterested to fight them, decided to cede the territory of Normandy, which suited everyone rather well. Except, of course, the French inhabitants of Normandy, who were really peeved to say the least. So in one fell swoop, the French king lost Normandy, as well as any future votes from that territory. A few mouthfuls of onion soup later, the Vikings were now Normans, and decided to pop back over to England for another crack at it in 1066. This time it worked out for them. Another hundred years later and they got itchy feet and landed in dear old Ireland again on the back of an invite from Dermot McMurrah. Only this time they weren't interested in fitting in with the local political system and jostling around with the other Irish kings. No, they went full mentler and steamrolled through a heap of Irish kingdoms. They were zero crack altogether and paved the way for the English conquest of Ireland. But that is, as they say, another story. If you've gotten this far, fair play. And if you have any questions, please let me know, and I'll answer them at the beginning of the next episode, which will thoroughly confuse newcomers to the show if they're tuning in for the first time. You can comment on Facebook, you can tweet Fingal Libraries, or you can even write me a letter. Address it to Barry Smith at Blanchetown Library, and it'll find its way to me. So thanks a million for listening. I'm Barry Smith of Fingal Libraries, and I hope you'll bring yourself to tune in next week for another thrilling episode. Slong of oil.